Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is singer, songwriter, musician, performance artist, and author Amanda Palmer, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2014 to present her memoir, The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. She's joined in conversation by novelist and writer Armistead Maupin. And now join Barbara Lane at the JCCSF as she introduces Amanda Palmer and Armistead Maupin. Before forming her first band, the Dresden Dolls, Amanda Palmer spent six years busking, often as a living statue called the Eight-Foot Bride in Harvard Square, an experience that led her to realize the power of asking people to toss money into a hat. With that in mind, she structured a crowdfunding project on Kickstarter to recoup the production costs of her album, Theater is Evil. She raised over $1.2 million. That campaign, combined with crowdsourcing music for her Grand Theft Orchestra tour, created a wave of controversy. But Amanda Palmer is no stranger to that. She was criticized for a protest piece of theater against Proposition 8, involving Margaret Cho and a fake Katy Perry and a poem for de Zohar, one of the brothers accused of the Boston Marathon bombing, and she totally stands up to it. One of my favorite Amanda Palmer stories concerns a wardrobe malfunction at the Glastonbury Music Festival that caused her breast to escape her bra. After being lambasted in Britain's Daily Mail, she performed a specially written song whose lyrics concluded with Dear Daily Mail, up yours. And halfway through it, she threw off her kimono and continued her performance entirely nude. (laughs) Amanda Palmer's ukulele anthem is so convincing on the joys of the instrument that it makes you want to just go out and buy one, and I did. She's here tonight with her remarkable memoir, The Art of Asking, which debuted at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. And the only thing as cool as having her on our stage is having San Francisco treasure the irrepressible Armistead Maupin join her in conversation. Please welcome Amanda Palmer to the JCCSF. Hi. Um, this is the uh, this is the first time in possibly ever that I am going to do a show entirely seated. <laughs> I'm just saying that, <laughs> right? No, I mean it's like I I um, I'm a to- I feel like a total adult. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> um, and I have a, oh, I have many many things I want to share with you guys. I'm going to read and. I'm going to play you some things, and I'm going to bring out Amazing Armistead. So, um, here's a song. In my mind, in a future five years from now, I'm 120 pounds, 
And I never get hungover Because I will be the picture of discipline Never minding what state I'm in And I will be someone I admire And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But it does not seem to have happened Maybe I've just forgotten how To see That I'm not exactly the person That I thought I'd be And in my mind In the far away here and now I've become in control somehow And I never lose my wallet Because I will be the picture of discipline Never f***ing up anything And I'll be a good defensive driver And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But it does not seem to have happened Maybe I've just forgotten how To see That I'm not exactly the person That I want to be And in my mind Which I will mindfully watch over Not like me now I'm so busy with everything That I don't look at anything But I'm sure I'll look when I am older And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But that's not what I want If that's what I wanted Somehow, how strange to see that I don't want to be the person that I want to be. And in my mind, I imagine so many things, things that aren't really happening. And when they put me in the ground I'll start pounding the lid Saying I haven't finished yet I still have a tattoo to get That says I'm living in the moment And it's funny I imagined That I would win this winless fight But maybe it really isn't funny That I've been fighting all my life But maybe I have to think it's funny If I want to live before I die And maybe it's funniest of all To think I'll die before I actually see That I am exactly the person that I want to be the
I started playing the ukulele as a joke. Um, you should applaud. Anyone who starts playing an instrument as a joke uh, has my full support. I mean, I, gr- I grew up as a piano player, and I'm, I'm still a piano player, but um, I started playing this little instrument as a gimmick for someone's benefit in, in Boston one night. I figured I would just learn one song on it and play it terribly, and that would be the end of that. Um, but it was so useful and you can only understand how amazing this thing was if you've been shackled to an instrument the size of a car that is absolutely unportable in every possible way and then all of a sudden you're given this little portable instrument and you can actually you know you can all of a sudden you can play songs for people in bathrooms and you'd never thought to do that before whole worlds opened up um so I kept playing it kind of as a joke and then I found myself in a couple of situations wanting to write songs and uh, as often happens on the road having no access to an instrument but I had the joke in my suitcase and the joke you know, tempted me to become a real instrument and so I wrote some songs on it and now it's, um, now it's become part of my life, this little guy I still don't know um, what any of the chords that I'm playing are and I love that. I just know that it's the backwards triangle or the line or the little the line with the triangle. And it's amazing. And now that I've uh, presented my incredibly impressive skills as a musician, um, I'll read to you from my book. Writing a book is not like writing a song. It's, it's, uh, it's longer. And it, take, it takes longer, and it also is uh, it's, it's lonelier. You know, so, I was so lonely writing this book because, I, and, and like that, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a performer, I'm a stage performer, and I'm like a flash songwriter. So like I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of like a crack addict. Like I, waiting is hard. And, um, and I had to wait. You know, I not only had to like sit in isolation for um, for months and months writing this book, but then you know it was done, and I had to I had to wait like two months for this book to come out, which is hilarious because if you ask a real author, um, they have they usually have to wait like a year for their books to come out, and I was so excited to like you know I'm like a five year old being like look at my painting I did a thing look look I did a thing put it on the fridge. Um, <laughs> And now, um, and now I wrote it so fast and it all happened so fast. And now I'm kind of figuring out what the book is. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't even sure. I, I, was, I, was, I was so lost in it and it happened so quickly. And um, I've been having these great conversations every night with different friends about different, their art processes. And um, I think this book more than anything else, which is weird because this is so specific and personal and totally nonfiction. Um, but I'm finding out what it's about from other people, if that makes sense. You know, it is, it's my personal story, but it's also really not. And 
this is um, this is from the beginning of the book when I'm talking about being a street performer. And people would always ask me, and still ask me, when I was standing as a statue, what was I thinking? And this is my attempt to try and explain. When a stranger put money into the hat, I would try to emanate an immense amount of gratitude for the savior who had momentarily freed me from my frozen pose. I wouldn't look at the donor immediately. I would be coy. I would look at the sky. I would look at the crowd. I would look at the street. I would look at my vase. And then once I had selected the perfect flower, I would gaze at my new friend, never smiling with my mouth, but always with my eyes, and lean my body forward ever so slightly, holding out the flower delicately clutched between my thumb and forefinger. And this always reminded me of the act of communion, that small, quiet, intimate moment where the priest proffers the wafer, instructing you to ingest the body of Christ. I hated church, but I liked the ritual, and I liked the singing, and I loved food. And even though that cracker was, so I'm going a little off-road here, but even though that cracker was so small, I really thought of it as a fantastic snack. <laughs> so a dollar into the hat, and I would gaze lovingly at my new human friend standing in front of me, my head filling up with a little silent monologue that sounded something like this. The body of Christ, the cup of salvation, Regard this holy flower, human friend. Take it, it's for you. A gift from my heart. Oh, you want a picture? Okay, we can take a picture. I'll just hold this flower and wait while your girlfriend gets out her camera. The body of Christ cup of salvation, the flower of patience. <laughs> oh, I see your girlfriend's camera batteries are dead. <laughs> That's fine. Now your other friend is getting his camera out. This is all fine, because I am the picture of Zen. I'm a statue in the moment. The body of Christ the cup of salvation, the flower of forgiveness. <laughs> so, here we go. Come to me, human friend. Nuzzle into the folds of my white gown. We will pose together, looking petific, with love. I was tall. He's down here. Oh, human friend. Your friend with the camera's really drunk, isn't he? <laughs> May he find peace. May he find solace. May he find the shutter button. Okay, you have finally taken your picture. You have high-fived your drunken friend. Now, please 
take this flower I've been holding for you for four minutes. (laughs) My sacrament, the body of Christ, the cup of salvation, the flower of oneness, and hey, where are you going? I have a flower for you. Why are you walking away? It's a holy token of love. Body of Christ. Where are you going? Take the flower! Really, dude? You don't want my flower? Fine. I will just keep it for the next person and hang my head in sorrowful shame for all that is wrong with the world. And as he walked away, I would hang my head in sorrowful shame for all that was wrong with the world. And if I was, by my own estimation, nailing my job, everybody watching this interaction on the sidewalk would shout after the dude as he walked away with his drunk friend and girlfriend. And this is my best Boston accent, by the way, because this was in Harvard Square. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, dude! Take the flower! She's got a... What are you, retarded? Take the flower! She's got a flower for you! And the dude would usually bend to the peer pressure and come back to take the flower. But not always. Sometimes I just had to let him go. Girls, for the record, almost always took the flower. The ones who refused seemed to think they were doing me a favor by rejecting it. Gesturing, no, 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 I, I, keep it for someone else. I couldn't possibly just take, I, I'm sorry. And they didn't understand that by rejecting my flower, they were breaking my heart. Because gifting them my flower, my stupid, holy little token, was what made me feel like an artist with something to offer them instead of a charity case. Over the years, though, I got used to it, and instead of taking it personally, I slowly began to understand. Sometimes people just don't want the flower. Sometimes you have to let them walk away. Thank you. And um, I'm going to read you. Let's see. I'm going to read you this. You can never give people what they want, Anthony said. What do you mean? We were lying by the side of Walden Pond in Concord, two towns over from Lexington where we'd created a ritual of ambling around the circumference of the water and then lazing under the trees with a picnic for a nice long grok. People always want something from you, he said. They want your time, your love, your money. They want you to agree with them and their politics, their point of view. And here's the thing. You can't ever give them what they want. But I interrupted him. That's a really dreary worldview. He looked at me. Let me finish, clown. You can't ever give people what they want. But you can give them something else. You can give them empathy. You can give them understanding. And that's a lot and enough to give.
You're listening to singer, songwriter, musician, performance artist, and author Amanda Palmer, whose memoir is The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. She's joined in conversation by novelist and writer Armistead Maupin on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. Well, I was working on the first draft of this book, which I did over a few thousand coffees in various cafes in Melbourne. I shared a coffee with Samantha Buckingham, who's an Australian indie guitarist, and I picked her brain about her process and her relationship with her own fan base. And Sam is typical of a lot of indie musicians, not on a label. She crowdfunds, releases to the internet, she plays house parties. And we were comparing notes about the pros and cons of Patreon, which is a subscription service that allows fans to automatically deposit money into a musician's account, sort of like a book of the month club for weirdos. So that artists can rely on a somewhat predictable income instead of praying that their Kickstarter will get funded every single time they have something to release. Sam has 44 patrons, and she's paid about $200 every time she releases a song. And also, people can choose how much they pay per song. They can cap their monthly bill so Sam doesn't all of a sudden dump 1,000 songs on people and run off to Mexico. Although running off to Mexico when you're Australian seems expensive. So I'm thinking she would more like run off to Tasmania or, you know, that's in Australia, but, you know, Papua New Guinea or New Zealand. Sam was, in fact, about to travel to Asia with her boyfriend, and she was fretting about what her backers would think if she released some of her new songs to Patreon while she was on vacation. She was worried that posting pictures of herself sipping a Mai Tai while releasing songs was going to make her look like an What does it matter where you are, what you're doing, or whether you're drinking a coffee, a Mai Tai, or a bottle of water, I asked. Aren't they paying for your songs so that you can live and make songs? Doesn't living include wandering and collecting emotions and maybe drinking a Mai Tai? Not just sitting in a room and writing songs without ever leaving the house? I told Sam about another songwriter friend of mine, Kim Bookbinder, who runs her own direct support website through which her fans pay her monthly at levels from five to $1,000. And she has a running online wish list of musical gear and costumes like a wedding registry to which her fans can contribute. And Kim had told me just a few days before that that she doesn't mind charging her backers during what she calls her staring at the wall time, which she thinks is essential before she can write a new batch of songs. And her fans don't complain. They trust her. If you're asking your fans to support you, the artist, it shouldn't matter what your choices are as long as you're delivering your side of the bargain. And you may be spending their money on guitar picks, Mai Tais, baby formula, college loans, gas for cars. As long as the art is coming out the other side and making your people happy, the money you need to live, and need to live is pretty hard to define, is almost indistinguishable from the money you need to make art. Like me, Sam, and a lot of other new online artists, Kim is in daily communication with her fans, and her ongoing arrangement with her 200 supporters functions because she shares her songwriting process along with her bad days and her heartaches. And so they trust her decisions, 
And when she posts a photo of herself in a vintage dress she just bought, nobody scolds her for spending money on something other than effects pedals. It's not like her fans' money is an allowance with nosy and parental strings attached. It's a gift in the form of money in exchange for her gift, which comes in the form of the songs. The relative values are messy, but if we just accept the messiness, we're fine. If Beck needs to moisturize his cuticles with truffle oil in order to play guitar tracks on the on, the, on his crowdfunded record, I don't care that the money I've fronted him isn't going towards two turntables or a microphone. Just as long as the art gets made, I get his album and Beck doesn't die. But that doesn't mean observers are going to stop criticizing artists and their choices or their processes anytime soon, no less than Henry David Thoreau has been called a poser. Thoreau wrote in painstaking detail about how he chose to remove himself from society to live by his own means in a little 10 by 15 foot hand hewn cabin on the side of a pond. But what he left out of Walden was the fact that the land he built on was borrowed from his wealthy neighbor. That his pal Ralph had him over for dinner all the time. And that every Sunday... Thoreau's mother and sister brought him a basket of freshly baked goods, including donuts. The idea of Thoreau gazing thoughtfully over the expanse of transcendental Walden Pond, a a bluebird alighting onto his threadbare shoe, all the while eating donuts that his mom brought him, just doesn't jibe with most people's picture of him as a self-reliant, noble, marrow-sucking, back-to-the-woods folk hipster. In the book An Underground Education, Richard Zacks declares, let it be known that Nature Boy went home on weekends to raid the family cookie jar. Thoreau also lived at Walden for a total of two or three years, but he condensed the book down to a single year, the four seasons, to make the book flow better, to work as a piece of art, and to best reflect his emotional experience. Does that mean it was a lie? I told this story to Sam over our coffees. Poor Thoreau, said Sam, shaking her head. The donuts are totally the Mai Tai. Taking the donuts is hard for a lot of people. It's not the act of taking that's so difficult. It's more the fear of what other people are going to think when they see us slaving away at our manuscript about the pure transcendence of nature while munching somebody else's donut. Maybe it comes back to that same old issue. that We can't see what we do as important enough to merit the help or the love. Try to picture getting angry at Einstein devouring a donut brought to him by his assistant while he sat slaving on the theory of relativity. Technically an unpaid job. Try to picture getting angry at Florence Nightingale for snacking on a donut while taking a break from tirelessly helping the sick. That's difficult, isn't it? So a plea to the artists, creators, scientists, Nonprofit runners, librarians, strange thinkers, start uppers, inventors, programmers, to all people everywhere who are afraid to accept the help in whatever form it's appearing. Please take the donuts. 
to the guy in my opening band who was too ashamed to go out into the crowd and accept money in his hat, take the donuts. And to the girl who spent her 20s as a street performer and a stripper living on less than $700 a month who went on to marry a best-selling author whom she loves unquestioningly. But even that massive love can't break her unwillingness to accept his help. Please, everybody, please just take the donuts. Thank you. And um, I have a I have a whole little list of things to do, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna um, hopefully not forget everything on my list. But I think for right now, this is a really good time to bring on my incredible special guest. So please welcome to the stage one of my writing heroes, Mr. Armistead Mopen. I love the fact that there were donuts backstage. I, well, I, I took two, actually. So you took all the donuts. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you want me to... Shall I read? Do you want to? I'd love to. Okay. I'll listen. It's just a short bit, but uh, it, with the strangest kind of Palmer-esque beauty and coincidence... Um, Ar- Armistead Mopin just used my name as an adjective. <laughs> I've been doing it for years, darling. I, um, the odd thing about this is you picked out this passage, and it was the one that I read to my husband in bed three nights ago. That's how... <laughs> that's, that's how universal this passage is. Awesome. And so it's, it's, not, it's kind of a, like a four-way between you and me and Neil and Chris... <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I think all of us would, actually. It's going to get crowded. These are the National Book Awards, and we're talking trash. <laughs> We've been together for a year, and Neil started asking me to marry him. The idea of marrying Neil terrified me. He asked and asked. We'd wake up in the morning and he'd ask. We'd bed down at night and he'd ask. We'd get ready to hang up after a long phone call and he'd ask. It was a running joke, but he also meant it. I felt my hard insides, my desperation to stay independent and the irony of it all. The girl who'd stood on the box for five years, falling in love and merging with a million passing strangers, yet remained staunchly resistant to an actual human merger. My inner feminist was also rolling her eyes. Just date, for Christ's sake. Maybe move in together. What is this, the 50s? But he wanted to get married. There was a practical level. He was dating a rock musician 16 years his junior, and introducing me as his wife instead of a girlfriend meant that, as annoying as it was, people would take me seriously. And the fact that we were both constantly traveling meant we couldn't take the halfway step of moving in together. And apart from the practical reasons, he simply wanted to get married. He said I made him feel safe. I didn't care as much about being taken seriously, but I figured we could make a deal. I asked him a battery of questions. I want to live and work alone. If we get married, do I have to live with you? (laughs) 
No, he said. Will you marry me? <laughs> Do I have to act like a wife? I don't really want to be a wife. No, you don't have to be a wife, he said. Will you marry me? <laughs> If we get married, will we be able to sleep with other people? Yep, he said. Will you marry me? <laughs> Can I maintain total control of my life? I need total control of my life. <laughs> yes, darling, I'm not trying to control you. At all. Will you marry me? <laughs> I probably don't want kids. That's fine. I have three. They're great. Will you marry me? <laughs> If I marry you and it doesn't work, can we just get divorced? Sure, he said brightly. <laughs> that's, that's just the best love story I've read in a long, long time. Um... And then I didn't think about it, but then, um, then we did get married, and you were there. I was there, and I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> uh, we had actually made a, a, a date for dinner uh, with, with Neil and Amanda, Chris and I. Uh, I think it was the 2nd of January or something like mm -hmm. that. Was the uh, she was here doing her show, and um, yeah, and uh, and. Uh, And Neil said, we can't, we're going to have to break the date. We can't have dinner with you, but come, we'll tell you where to go. Something is happening. <laughs> and he said, uh, do, uh, come to I.L. at Wallman and Michael Shaben's house over in Berkeley. We'll have food. We'll have food. I think I'm going to really tell you something you don't know right now. And they're really... <laughs> Even Good. tell it, but that's, you're an inspiration, so I'm going to tell it. Um, the Obamas were in, in Hawaii at that point, and I had read at the paper that they were having a stopover in San Francisco. And I knew that Ayelet and Michael had actually done a lot of fundraising for the Obamas, had been at their house and knew them. I'm not sure where this is headed, but it's my, not good. My poor husband, he was shaking his head from the very beginning. I, I just have this very eerie feeling. We're going to meet the President of the United States. And, and, and he said, you're going to be really embarrassed when the polka band shows up. We got to the... And they, they actually read that their plane was... I mean... I had moved totally into that realm, and I thought, this is the big surprise. So we got to the house. <laughs> It was so much better than meeting the Obamas. I have to say. It really, it couldn't have been any better. But we got to the house, and Ayelet and, and, uh, and Michael's kids were all dressed up. And I thought, well, that's a little, you're going to meet the president, but don't dress up your children. <laughs> How gauche. We arrived at the door and said, somebody, can you help in the back with the, uh, with the casseroles or whatever? It finally dawned on me. And then I, I was just, oh, it felt like the most wonderful privilege in the world. You were upstairs sitting on the, well, I presume it was down because you were in your wedding dress, but you were upstairs on the toilet writing your remarks, your, your wedding remarks. And uh, Chris ended up being your official wedding photographer because he was the one with the iPhone. <laughs> And you said the most beautiful thing. I don't think I've ever 
heard anything so beautiful, and it's echoed in the book because Neil is always warning you that he makes things up, mm. which is what writers have to warn everybody. I should have put those in the book. They'd be a good appendix. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Um, or you could read it. But what you said was what got me was when you stood up and read your remarks to Neil, you said, um, you're, you're a writer and you make things up, but I want you to know you don't have to make me up. Which I just thought was so lovely. <laughs> Do you hate me now because I no. thought the Obamas were going to be there? No. I'm kind of pissed the Obamas didn't come to our election. <laughs> Chris um, made Preston, don't tell that story. Do not tell that story. No, I won't. Okay, it's, yeah. This is being oh, yeah. webcast. <laughs> um, Armistead, uh, Armistead gave me, uh, gave, gave me my, um, my, 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 my first alcoholic drink that night. He came like bounding up to the bathroom where I was sitting there sort of freaking out, figuring what I was going to say. You know, we really, we, we had planned this maybe a week or two before, and we had already had um, dinner plans with Ayelet and Michael, and we called them, and we were like, can we get married in your house? Because we can't figure out whether, you know, what we're going to do. We don't want to have a big wedding, and we just want to get, you know, we just want to get it over with, and we want to do it with our friends. And Armistead comes up with this, like, amazing concoction of champagne and something else, and gives it to me and says, it's a nervous bride. Drink it. <laughs> Guess um, what she was wearing, by the way. Guess what the bridal gown was. Yeah. Yeah, which I've lost, of course. Right? But actually, I, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I lose things, and but traveling constantly is uh, is part of the like part of the deal. Is like you learn your life becomes an, a, a meditation on how to lose. Shit. Because you can't travel every day of your life and not lose things and occasionally use, lose something or lose track of something. You lost... I asked when, when we were backstage if the ukulele was the, the yeah. one in the book because it disappeared. This, yeah, there's a great story in the book. Um, uh, to, not, not worth reading, but worth relating. So this was the first ukulele I bought. You know, this was the joke ukulele. It was 19 bucks and... Um, you know, it's, it's plastic basically. Um, but you know, I had been carrying it around the world and I'd grown really sentimentally attached to it. And I did this crazy late night, um, you know, like lock-in show in a basement bar that belonged to some random friends and everyone running around every which way and four in the morning and drunk London people. And I led everyone into my dressing room and the wine was flowing. And at the end of the night, um, I realized it had been stolen and the case and all had been like there was undoubtedly it had been on this counter and it had walked away um and it wasn't even in that case it wasn't even so much the loss it was the fact that it had been this wonderful night of community and trust and mm. wonderful drunk friends and um and someone had had broken the code you know someone had violated the the love and the trust and i really like I felt like that really hit me below the belt because my whole, you know, and there's a lot of this in the book, like this flip side of what happens when you blindly trust people. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not all unicorns and rainbows and like, and, and rightly so, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be a risk. You know, otherwise trusting people would be, would be easy.
This is Bina, KALW's series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is singer, songwriter, musician, performance artist, and author Amanda Palmer, whose memoir is The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. She's joined in conversation by novelist and writer Armistead Maupin. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. And I tweeted the next day that the ukulele had walked away and that I was incredibly heartbroken about it. And like a half an hour later, I got a Twitter from someone in London saying, we know who took it. They're really sorry. They're really scared. (laughs) But they want to give it back. And so... You know, this ambassador kind of like worked in the middle and I, you know, I gave the, I gave the thieves my address. I was staying at Imogen Heap's house. I don't say that in the book, but I was staying at Imogen Heap's house. And, um, and these, you know, like a couple hours later, these two really frightened British teenagers, a boy and a girl show up, ring the bell with the ukulele and I open the door and they're like, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. Drunk. We were really, really drunk. We were really, really drunk. Sorry, 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 sorry. And I was like, shh. Um, and the only way I could really see of completely making sense of this story was to sit them down. I made them some tea, and I told them my old shoplifting stories. And like, I tried to tell them my most embarrassing teenage shoplifting stories, and also the night when I was, uh, you know, not even a teenager anymore, like old enough to know better, twenty years old blind drunk, doing merch for one of my favorite bands, stealing some of their CDs, something that haunted me my entire life until they were opening up for me and I was 34 and I finally confessed that I had stolen four of their CDs. And like my whole world changed. Um, But it was, it it was a really, um, it was, that was like one of those great internet love stories where like the, like all of the good and all of the bad and all of the communication sort of like happened in that one moment and and this this ukulele is still here but i have to consider the fact that one day i'll lose it and then it'll be gone just like the wedding dress you know it's 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 strange but i actually i think about it every day especially now that i've written this book and it's taken on this huge symbolic significance and i don't know where it is and it's like it's a great practice of just like every time i start clutching with regret mm. I have to let it go and it's like <laughs> yeah so it's just yeah. a thing yeah it's just, it's just a, thing. a thing um this is something I wanted to ask you like when you when you wrote you know whatever that you could even it's like compare your process 20 years ago to mm. to two days ago do you actually keep a schedule do you sit down and say I'm going to start at 10 and end at 2 and I'm going to write and then just no, I, I I mean I usually do work in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, and then I like smoke a joint at four o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and then and then go back to work and it's more it's fun. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's that's honest, completely honest. Um, you can't do it that way all the time. Obviously, you have there has to be discipline and form, but. You are the best example of it I know. Art is about play. Mm. 
I mean, it's, it's really about play. You have to, to put yourself in the moment. You have to be playing and engaging. And, and I think that I have, in, in some ways, I mean, many writers just sit in their garret and do it and don't think about its effect on anybody. <clears throat> I would imagine that the TED Talk was really great because it, it gave you a form. You knew what the, the... They came to you about the book after the TED Talk, right? I mean, yeah. you got approached then. Yeah, I mean, it's... So you could build on that idea and then let it Absolutely, blossom. yeah. No, I had, a, I had an arc already set for me. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's really interesting the order in which things have happened. I look at it and I totally take it for granted. But of course, um, you know, it's a series of incredible coincidences. And make no mistake, a 12-minute a, a TED Talk, it's a piece of theater, Mm-hmm. It's a 12-minute monologue. If, you know, and if it's good, it's got, the, it's got the emotional arc of a great 12-minute short piece of theater where you are sucking your audience in, you're making them trust you, and then you're surprising them and you're turning and you're sharing a story. But you know, I, I, I went through several processes, which is like when I first wrote that TED Talk... I just wrote down, I typed down what I thought I wanted to say. I recorded it into a phone. It was 26 minutes long. <laughs> I knew I was going to have to cut a lot. Um, and then I also realized something really important as I kept um, rehearsing the talk for more and more people, which I did a lot of. Like I called on all my friends and I just spoke it over and over again until it became more conversational because reading, writing, I, even if I could even feel it tonight. Reading, writing isn't the same as talking to people. No, there is a there is a voice on the page that is totally different and has a completely different cadence um, and a different set and a different vocabulary and a different yeah. sentence structure. And and I, I noticed this because I'm I'm a, I'm kind of a geek. And when I got offered the TED Talk, I watched like sixty TED Talks. And I, and I started noticing these patterns that the good talks, um, I noticed the patterns emerging. And when you watch TED, notice this. They all start with, so how many f- books start with, so, and, uh, and it's true. It's like what you're saying there with your body yeah. language and with your, and, and with your speaking language is, well, I'm talking to you which is really different. And so part of my process with writing the TED Talk was to plow out the writtenness of it and work on the spokenness of it. Yeah. And a few other people, like if you watch Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk, she really nails that as well. She, she has a great writing voice, but for TED, she really like, she rehearsed her speaking voice. And, um, you know, and I kind of did the same thing with this. I was like, this needs to be a book voice. I've never written a book. I don't know what my book voice is. I know what my blog voice is. I know what my Twitter voice is. This is going to be something new, and I'm going to have to find it while writing it. And, um, and it was hard. And I, and I don't feel like I did it perfectly. Like, being on this tour has actually sucked because I'm reading it, and I'm going like, oh, I could have said this so much better, and why did I cut that? And, oh, my God, I just used the same adjective three times. Oh, my... And I'm, you know... And, and again, like, it, I'm... I'm okay with its imperfection. It's my first book. Hopefully I will write another and I will get better. We've, uh, we've run incredibly late, but there's a song I wanted to play you guys, so. I haven't been writing a ton of songs lately because book. And 
There's, there's so much in the book I would have loved to read tonight, but this was better. And hopefully you'll read the book. Um, but it does, it does get pretty dark, especially um, in, the, in the criticism and the internet hate department. And the, yeah. I mean, the second half of the book, a lot of things in my life, you know, marriage stuff, uh, my best friend with cancer, and controversy after controversy, and internet hate upon internet hate just kind of piling up in an intolerable, you know, when you ask how you deal with it, like sometimes I just can't deal with it, and I just, you know, break, break down and don't really know what to do. And um, there, was a, there was a really dark patch for a while there. And I found myself feeling really hypocritical because, you know, artists have been asking me for years, like, how do I deal with depression? You know, how do I deal with people telling me that my, you know, that I'm terrible? And how do you deal with internet trolls? And I'm like, you know, you just make art. It'll be great. <laughs> uh, and there I found myself kind of at the bottom of the blackness, um, totally unable to do anything. But when I finally, uh, when I finally came out the other side, this was one of the things that helped. And it's a song I wrote, um, having not written anything for about a year. Low red. 
think I'd learn my lesson from the way they keep on testing my capacity for pain and my resolve to not get violent but
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank my guest, Armistead Mopan, for coming tonight. Thank you guys all for being here, and have a wonderful night. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.com. Org. Today's guest was singer, songwriter, musician, performance artist, and author Amanda Palmer, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2014 to present her memoir, The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. She was joined in conversation by novelist and writer Armistead Maupin. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program, our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanin Trio, and the music you're hearing right now is by John Zor. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.